Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions, which officially goes on sale tomorrow. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And, Jim, we start with one of our favorite conservative politicians. We don't talk about him a lot, but I can't think of a single time where we've ever talked about him and it wasn't in glowing terms. And that is Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott, who was reelected convincingly to a second term last year, even in the midst of Betomania. Uh, Greg Abbott was never seriously threatened, easily won by double digits. And as they're wrapping up the legislative session in Texas, he is signing bill after bill and vetoing some also. Uh, And it's just another reminder of why we love Greg Abbott and kind of why we also love Texas. Uh, There's a number of issues that he has uh, signed that ought to make conservatives very happy, Uh, one of which is free speech on college campuses. That's one that just came down over the weekend. And as he is uh, often likely to do when he signs a bill, he does a quick Twitter video about it. Here's what he said about this one. Some colleges are banning free speech on college campuses. Well, no more, because I'm about to sign a law that protects free speech on college campuses in Texas. Shouldn't have to do it. First Amendment guarantees it. Now it's law in Texas. Let's look at what else Greg Abbott has legalized in Texas, along with the legislature. Delivery of beer and wine to the home, which was previously illegal. He has signed legislation to ban red light cameras throughout the state of Texas. He has signed multiple pieces of legislation cracking down on human trafficking. And in the wake of the horrific school shooting south of Houston back in 2018, he's also taken action on that legislatively. Here's uh, Texas TV station KVUE. Senate Bill 11 is a comprehensive bill to heighten school safety standards. It requires all campuses have threat assessment teams and the buildings themselves have higher safety standards. It also creates the Texas Child Mental Health Consortium, a telemedicine mental health care system. This consortium will use health-related institutions of higher education to provide mental health services to children all across the state of Texas. House Bill 18 increases mental health training standards for educators and school personnel, teaching them how to properly respond to children. It also improves access to care through school-based mental health centers. Students can be treated, but only after parental consent. And House Bill 1387 removes the cap on how many school marshals can be on a campus, letting district leaders decide instead. And those marshals are obviously allowed to carry. So, Jim, he's addressing some huge problems, some of them bigger than others, obviously, with school shootings more significant than beer delivery to the home. But it's still a freedom issue. And when it comes to uh, Greg Abbott, he wants the people of Texas to have more freedom, not less. And that's a good model, especially when the left is spewing socialism left and right. Yeah. And, you know, Greg Abbott, you're right, is one of those guys who probably doesn't get nearly as much national attention and praise as he deserves. I occasionally hear through the rumor mill that someday Greg Abbott may want to run for president. And I think that would be excellent. I think besides the fact that he's been, you know, first a very effective state attorney general, then a very effective governor. I think most people know by now that you know, he's in a wheelchair. He's been that way since a tree fell on him while he was jogging. And I think it'd be kind of fascinating to have a, uh, I don't know whether the term you're supposed to use these days is handicapped or differently able or something like that. Greg Abbott is just this, you know, perfect personification that you can overcome an unbelievable amount of adversity in your life. 
I don't think anyone can dispute that he is anything other than a rock-ribbed conservative, and he gets things done. He's not all about the theatrics. He is very much about the substance. And this is, you know, some great examples that you listed there, Greg. I think also, you know, the Republican Party would be wise to make an argument that the two most populous states in the country have two very different approaches, two very different philosophies demonstrated by the majority party in them. California has the Democrats, Texas has the Republicans. From our perspective, you're getting exactly what you would expect. California's got some enormous resources and a lot of people love living there, but it's also got some enormous problems. And I think the thing that's striking me, as we've talked about on this podcast, is that the major cities in California, man, they can even keep poop off the sidewalks. And we're, <laughs> we're not always talking about dog poop. They have some enormous wealth in some places, but enormous poverty in others and stuff. And Texas has gone into pretty much since the George W. Bush era. A very an attitude of much more conservative, much more freedom focused, much more limited government focused policies, policies that have prioritized growth, prioritized jobs. I decided to look it up, Greg. Um, so 2010, which is about halfway through the Perry years, uh, they had 25 million. It's up to 29.1 million people living in Texas now, according to most recent estimates. That's a major accomplishment. That's, you know, it's a sign. People are moving there. There's an old joke back during the Obama years that Rick Perry used to boast about all the companies in California that were relocating to Texas. Cheaper land, cheap cost of living, more value for your dollar, lower taxes, quality of life. There's just a whole bunch of things. And so we can kind of say to the country, look, there are two different paths here. Greg Abbott and his record and his predecessors personifies what conservatism can do for you. And Gavin Newsom and Jerry Brown can demonstrate more or less what progressivism can get you in your state. And uh, it just reminds you that Greg Abbott is a combination of a decent guy. I think just about everybody that deals with him likes him, even if they don't agree with him. And he's exceptionally competent. And he's also a bit of a throwback to a time where I think a lot of Americans would still like to be. And that's where you elect a guy because you like him and you think he's going to do a good job. But you don't want to think about him every day. And that's probably why we don't talk about him that much, because he's just quietly doing his job in a competent way. And uh, he doesn't really add a lot of drama to the situation. Now, if he were to be on the national stage, I'm sure that the media would have plenty to throw at him in in a number of different ways with uh, criticism of the policies and so forth. But he's a breath of fresh air in terms of the fact that he does his job, does his job well, and he's very gracious about it. And, Jim, you mentioned also that because of Greg Abbott's fiscal conservatism, there's a lot more money in the pockets of Texas residents, and he's committed to fighting to keep it that way. And we want as much money in our pockets as possible. But sometimes circumstances arise in our lives, and we don't have the money on hand that we need. I get the feeling that Texas residents uh, don't have that problem as much as some folks in deep blue states where the tax rates keep going up. But if you find yourself needing money in a pinch, Lending Club is the way to go. If you're carrying around revolving debt, that means you're not paying off your credit card every month, and you could be paying thousands in interest every year that you don't have to. With Lending Club... You can consolidate your debt or pay off credit cards with one fixed monthly payment. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed rate personal loans. No trips to a bank, no high interest credit cards. Just go to LendingClub.com, tell them about yourself and how much you want to borrow, pick the terms that are right for you, and if you're approved, your loan is automatically deposited into your bank account in as little as a few days. Lending Club is the number one peer-to-peer lending platform with more than $35 billion in loans issued. All you have to do is go to LendingClub.com slash Martini. You can check your rate and minutes and borrow up to $40,000. That's LendingClub.com slash Martini. LendingClub.com slash Martini. All loans made by WebBank, member FDIC, equal housing lender.
All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And we've talked about this a lot, mainly with Twitter, but now YouTube's getting into the game. There's quite a backstory here. There was a a writer over at Vox that uh, has made a habit lately of highlighting things that he thinks ought to be banned on YouTube, and YouTube generally complies. But YouTube is going even further now, and that's that they're actually looking to not just remove content that violates the standards established by YouTube, but even stuff that doesn't really violate those standards. Cinder Pichai is the CEO of Google and sat down with uh, Axios, and here's what he had to say about where he wants to see YouTube going when it comes to content. Today we do this in search. We, you know, we rank content based on quality. And so we're bringing that same notion and approach to YouTube so that we can rank higher quality stuff better and really prevent uh, borderline content, content which doesn't exactly violate policies which need to be removed but which can still cause harm. And so we are working hard. It's a hard computer science problem. It's also a hard societal problem because we need better frameworks around what is hate speech, what's not, and how do we as a company make those decisions at scale and get it right without making mistakes. Jim, as we've explained before, private companies can set whatever standards they want, but if they're looking for a broad swath of content, defining harm, defining hate speech, which even he admits is not easy, uh, it might even be impossible. We're going down a pretty slippery slope here, and the conservatives are obviously the ones who are getting hit the most with stuff being banned and so forth. Where do you think this is going? Um, users have every right in the world to be really upset about what I think amounts to something of a bait and switch, because for a really long time, uh, you can apply this to YouTube, but you can also apply this to Facebook and Twitter. That when they said, you know, we connect the world, we give you a platform to reach the world, it was never a we give you a platform to reach the world as long as we approve. Uh, as long as we don't think you're offending someone, as long as we don't think that you're promoting hate speech, as long as we don't, th- you know, there was never any, you know, when, when it came along, if it had been initially described as that, then you might have had fewer people might have gone into this knowing that there was a possibility that YouTube was going to either, you know, yank the ability to make money off the videos like they did with Steven Crowder recently, or just flat out ban them entirely. And for a long time, all these companies kept insisting, look, we're not a media company. Because nobody really says, I submitted an op-ed to the New York Times. The New York Times chose not to run it. This is censorship. (laughs) Most people realize, okay, no, that's kind of ridiculous. But when YouTube was formed, there was no one who said, oh, we're only going to allow you to put stuff up on our platform if we deem it appropriate. For a while there, I suspect a lot of these social media companies believed their rhetoric, that they were not, that their argument was, look, we're not deciding what goes in the newspaper, we're the printing press, or maybe even the more appropriate metaphor is like, look, all we're putting together is the bathroom wall. What you choose to write on it is up to you. Don't blame us for what other people choose to write on there. Even if it's, you know, for a good time, call Jenny at 8675309. The idea is that basically they were just giving everybody a platform. If you had a problem with what was said on it, take it up with the person themselves, not with the company. And clearly, I think this has become completely untenable. And not if you want to say, okay, this is ridiculous, they're banning Steven Crowder. Look, there was the shooter down in New Zealand and all the people who were streaming his live videos and stuff like that. There is stuff that undoubtedly Facebook and YouTube and Twitter or these other companies, there'll be a pretty broad consensus of, okay, wait a second. No, you should not be probably putting up first-person video of mass shootings and things like that. And then you get into the, you know, the hate stuff. It gets a little bit grayer about what, the, what these sorts of things are. In today's Morning Jolt, I kind of put out a scenario that would probably never happen. But if these companies said, you know what? We're progressive companies. Our leadership has a viewpoint. Most of our staffers have a viewpoint. We turned it to part of the public discourse. And in retrospect, we never really wanted to do that. 
We're not very good at policing public discourse fairly. So we're not going to try to do it fairly anymore. We're not interested. We have a clear viewpoint. The purpose of Facebook or YouTube or Twitter is to promote progressive values. If you stand in the way of those values, we will deplatform you. This is our policy. This is our agenda. We believe these viewpoints do not belong on what we have built. If you don't like it, build your own social media. I think you know, I, I put that out there kind of as a thought experiment. And a decent number of people are saying, well, one, that would be more honest than what they're doing now. And two, I, I think that would spur a decent number of people who are currently on Facebook or on these different you know, social media platforms and say, well, okay, clearly they don't want me to be there. I'm going to take my business elsewhere. And I think this would spur the creation of some sort of alternative you know, video system, some sort of alternative sort of thing to Twitter or to Facebook or something like that. So my suspicion is we actually would be better off if they were open about it. The fact that they're now saying, look, we want to, we want to get rid of this stuff that's borderline. When you say that, what you mean is you want to move the border. You, you basically want to say things that we do not currently find too offensive or too objectionable to have on our site, we don't want to have them on our site anymore. Um, and they're broadening the terms of censorship. Now, as you said, it's their company, but I think if they were open about it and say, look, this isn't just going to be Klan stuff or mass shooting stuff, you know, we find Steven Crowder's jokes to be every bit as threatening as um, uh, Al-Qaeda videos or ISIS videos. Fine, be open about your viewpoint on that. And then the Steven Crowders of the world and probably a whole bunch of the rest of us would say, you know what, I don't want to have any part of Facebook anymore. I don't have any part of YouTube anymore. I'm off going to do my own thing. And, you know, maybe some company would set itself up and say, hey, we're the free speech company. We'll take anything you want. We make no, you know, we, we'll have zero censorship. We know there's going to be all kinds of terrible stuff on it, but this is what, you know, buyer beware, viewer beware. And, uh, you know, everybody could be, I think, be a lot more satisfied with a system like that. All right, Jim, let's go to a double-barreled, double-fisted, I should say, uh, crazy martini. And let's go to Fox News, first of all. Both of these relate to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. U.S. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez turned tail on Manhattan's Fifth Avenue to avoid a potential Republican challenger as they both marched in the National Puerto Rican Day Parade on Sunday, her political opponent said. Talk radio producer Rich Valdez told The Post that he tried to challenge the freshman Democratic congresswoman to a debate on the merits of capitalism versus socialism when he spotted her near West 47th Street. But Ocasio-Cortez cut her handshaking short, jerked her hand back, and jetted to the other side of the street. She literally ran, he said. I thought this was a good time to try and get a response, but I honestly only saw the back of her head as she trotted across the street. Curtis Slewa of the Guardian Angels and also a radio guy backed up the account from Valdez. The other story, as it relates to AOC, comes to us from Axios. Top Democrats telling Axios on HBO they expect AOC may eventually primary one of the two Democratic New York senators, either Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in 2022 or Senator Kirsten Gillibrand in 2024. The Ocasio-Cortez communications director says when AOC thinks down the road, she thinks in terms of transitioning Democrats to a party that's unified around progressive policies. And so he's not getting real committal on what her future political plans are. According to a Harris poll for Axios on HBO, 55% of women aged 18 to 54 favor socialism. Uh, 55% of women altogether prefer socialism. So, Jim, what do you make of the latest AOC news here? So, uh, Greg, last week I wrote a piece about what I call grifter packs and scam packs, packs that are, you know, either pledged to support candidates that aren't running or uh, aren't very accountable for how they spend their money and things like that. One of the things I fear is that because AOC has become this unbelievable political celebrity and this one of the one of the biggest figures on the scene in a very short period of time, 
Because of that, there are a whole bunch of people who will say, I'm going to run against AOC, donate to me. When in fact, the demographics of this district pretty much make it clear that any Democrat who wins the primary is going to have that seat for as long as they want. So if you're going to beat uh, AOC, you're probably going to have to beat her in a Democratic primary. The interesting thing is that there's been some little bit of grumbling in her district. You may recall that she opposed the Amazon deal. Amazon decided to pull out of the city. Her constituents and people in her district were not thrilled by that. They saw it as a giant pile of jobs, and they didn't see Amazon as this giant, ugly corporatist entity that had to be fought at all costs. So there's the avenue if you want to beat AOC. You need a not-quite-as-progressive Democrat to go after her on the grounds of not representing her constituents well, to argue this has gone to her head. She's very happy being a political star, but she's forgotten job one, which is represent the interests of your constituents. And that could probably work against her. Uh, You probably have a decent shot about that. Will it work this time around? I don't know. This is something probably worth keeping an eye on. Ilhan Omar and uh, Rashida Tlaib also getting a little bit of these grumblings. There's some people don't like seeing their freshman congresswoman become a superstar overnight uh, and shaping the national debate that much because like, hey, wait a second, wait a second. Your job is to represent me. And if you're not taking care of the little stuff, I don't care about all this big stuff that you're doing. So there's an avenue there. The other thing which I think is really intriguing is that talk about her running for the Senate. I think if you want to see AOC fall, then you probably actually want to encourage these ambitions, uh, in part because Chuck Schumer is an old, wily guy. and He's not going to get you know knocked off in a primary easily, nor is for all the mocking we do of Kirsten Gillibrand. Uh, is she likely to go quietly into that night? I'm thinking a bit about the actress from Sex and the City running against Andrew Cuomo. But, you know, even, even when there's a decent number of disgruntled Democrats, those who still have the party machine and those who still have the advantages of incumbency still have a pretty heavy advantage, even in New York's state Democratic primary. So the other interesting thing is that if you're AOC, you're quickly learning just how little power you have as a freshman member of Congress and how long it takes to get power in the House. Uh, and obviously, it's easier when your party's in the majority, but there's a good chance that you're probably going to have to spend two terms, three terms, four terms, actually having the seniority and committee positions to really get stuff done as opposed to, you know, all that stuff. So I kind of wonder if at some point AOC will prefer being a political celebrity running for Senate and, you know, you win, great, now you're a senator. If you lose, then you're a martyr to the cause. Then the establishment has beaten you. Uh, And then AOC can, you know, spend all of her time, you know, being AOC full-time instead of having this annoyance of her duties as a member of the House of Representatives getting in the way of all this. So um, good luck to the primary challenger. And if she really wants to run for the Senate, go for it, AOC. (laughs) Uh, Let's have a big, messy, expensive Democratic primary (laughs) fight in New York State. I don't think it would get that ugly against Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer's not going anywhere. There's no way he loses. Kirsten Gillibrand has probably lost some cachet because of just how willing she is to say and do anything to grovel to people. But ultimately, if AOC ends up running for Senate, obviously she would have to give up the House seat because those elections are in even-numbered years. So I'm going to horrify you, Jim, and suggest that if she ever runs for a different office, it's going to be mayor of New York City. Isn't that the kind of punishment that New Yorkers deserve (laughs) for re-electing de Blasio? Like, oh, you thought that was bad? Well, there you go. We began this podcast talking about the differences between Greg Abbott and what we're seeing in Texas and what we're seeing from Democrats in California. Look, New Yorkers, if you choose to elect AOC your mayor, you deserve what you get. <laughs> hey, by then, Anthony Weiner might be running again, too. So, you know. Yeah, there you go. He, much like a VD, he keeps coming back over and over again. <laughs> Jim, no way to follow up on that comment. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions, which officially debuts tomorrow. Chances are we'll be talking about that on the podcast. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.